welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Let's do our team timeout. Our patient today is the Upper GI Esophagogastric Module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the operation or topics we're going to be covering today are gastroesophageal reflux disease and hiatus hernias. This is a bit of a big topic, so let's get started. First, let's talk about gastroesophageal reflux disease, commonly known as GORD. The Montreal classification from 2006 says that GORD is a condition that develops when the reflux of stomach contents causes troublesome symptoms and or complications. The symptoms that they talk about that are the typical symptoms of reflux are greater than two heartburn episodes per week, with heartburn being a burning sensation in the retrosternal area, and regurgitation, which is the perception of flow of gastric contents into the mouth or hypopharynx. And these symptoms need to adversely affect a person's well-being. It's very common, about 15 to 20% of the population will complain of gastroesophageal reflux disease. Two-thirds of patients with symptom-defined reflux disease will have a normal endoscopy. And two-thirds of patients who have an abnormal endoscopy with esophagitis are asymptomatic, which is just a little bit of an introduction to this topic and how it's very difficult to correlate patients' symptoms and pathology. In terms of why reflux disease occurs, first we need to look at what are the anti-reflux mechanisms of the esophagus and upper GI tract. There are a number of mechanisms that are thought to contribute to stopping reflux of gastric contents into the esophagus. These include uh, the lower esophageal sphincter, which has a high pressure zone, which is maintained by basal tone of the muscle in the lower esophageal sphincter. In addition to this, the angle of hiss is thought to contribute, and this is the angle between the esophagus and the cardia of the stomach. The other mechanism that's thought to contribute is the passage of the esophagus through the diaphragm and the sling of fibers from the right crus around the esophagus. These diaphragmatic fibers lead to a pinch cock mechanism. In addition, the mucosal rosette of the esophageal gastric junction may act as a partial barrier to reflux. And the fact that the distal 2 to 3 centimeters of the esophagus are intra-abdominal is also thought to contribute to prevention of reflux due to increase in abdominal pressure causing compression of that part of the esophagus. There are other mechanisms that help protect the distal esophagus from any acid reflux that does occur, such as the fact that there are acid receptors in the distal esophagus that, when activated, lead to peristalsis of the distal esophagus to clear the acid quickly. So when thinking about these protective mechanisms, it's easy to then I guess, surmise that reflux disease happens when some of these or all of these protective mechanisms are overcome. So some predisposing factors to gourd are thought to be a hiatus hernia. This results in widening of that angle of hiss, effacement of the lower esophageal sphincter, and loss of the assistance of that intra-abdominal part of the esophagus and the pressure placed on that with increases in intra-abdominal pressure, 
which together will lead to reflux of gastric contents into the esophagus. Esophageal dysmotility or issues with esophageal clearance of acid can also contribute to gourd. Um, and there are other factors that are risk factors for the development of gourd that include smoking, alcohol, obesity and pregnancy, which increases the intra-abdominal pressure, increasing age, uh, diabetes, cardiac, gastrointestinal and psychiatric comorbidities, and gastric dysfunction. So how does gastroesophageal reflux disease present? I already talked about those two typical symptoms, which are heartburn and regurgitation or volume reflux. The Montreal 2006 definition and classification does subdivide gourd into esophageal and extraesophageal syndromes or presentations. So those esophageal syndromes are those ones I just talked about, reflux and um, regurgitation but it also splits it into syndromes of esophageal injury. So evidence of gastroesophageal reflux disease may be when you find esophagitis, when you find a peptic stricture, Barrett's esophagus, or the development of an adenocarcinoma. An extraesophageal manifestation of reflux disease could include things such as reflux cough, reflux laryngitis, reflux asthma, and reflux dental erosions. And there's some proposed associations with other syndromes such as pharyngitis, sinusitis, and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Differential diagnoses for patients presenting with reflux or heartburn syndromes could be things such as ischemic heart disease, gallstones, gastroesophageal cancers, peptic ulcers, and esophageal dysmotility syndrome, uh, and esophagitis, either eosinophilic or other. Diagnosis of gastroesophageal reflux disease can be straightforward. If a patient presents with typical symptoms and you start a PPI and they respond to treatment, then you can consider that they have the disease. But patients don't always present uh, typically. Um, it can be difficult to diagnose and there are some other tests that we can do that help indicate what may be the cause of the problem. So firstly, we would start with a history of the patient's symptoms when they're occurring, what exacerbates the symptoms, and whether the symptoms have a relationship to any volume reflux that they have. It's important to consider, based on their symptoms, whether you need to refer a patient to another specialty, such as cardiology, respiratory, or ENT, and to find out whether or not the patient has tried a PPI in the past and what, if any, change that they had in their symptoms. In terms of further investigations, if a patient's presented with typical symptoms and responded to a PPI, they may not need any further investigation. Some patients may require an endoscopy, and you would consider doing an endoscopy in somebody who had other red flag symptoms, such as dysphagia or dinophagia, any anemia or upper or lower GI bleeding, loss of weight, recurrent symptoms, so having symptoms come back after a period of stability on PPI, if they've had previous diagnosis of Barrett's or esophagitis, if they have trialed a PPI for four to eight weeks and they've not had any resolution of their symptoms, and also uh, in patients who are in high-risk groups such as um, middle-aged men, for example, you may consider doing a screening endoscopy. Two-thirds of patients with reflux will have a normal endoscopy, but the classic finding of esophagitis is uh, diagnostic of reflux disease. And when we're looking at esophagitis on an endoscopy, we like to grade this using the Los Angeles classification. 
Los Angeles classification is grade A, B, C, and D. Grade A is mucosal breaks that are less than five millimeters in length and don't extend between the tops of the mucosal folds. Grade B are mucosal breaks that are more than five millimeters in length, but again, do not extend between the tops of mucosal folds. Grade C are mucosal breaks that do extend between the tops of mucosal folds, but not more than 75% of the esophageal circumference. And grade D are mucosal breaks which extend between the tops of two mucosal folds that are more than 75% of the esophageal circumference. Other tests that we can do to look for reflux disease are ambulatory pH studies. These should preferentially be done off PPI therapy and they are an objective assessment of reflux and they correlate reflux episodes with patient symptoms. So they involve um, putting a probe into the esophagus and also having a patient have a push button that they press when they get their reflux episodes. And you would do these in patients who had typical reflux symptoms that were refractory to a PPI, in patients who had atypical symptoms where you weren't sure whether or not this was reflux disease and where you were considering reflux surgery in these patients. And basically the pH studies will give you a a printout or an answer about how many episodes of reflux that they are having up into the esophagus. So it'll monitor when they're having high acidification levels at the distal esophagus and also will tell you whether or not when they're having that reflux, whether they've pushed that button and therefore there is a correlation with symptoms. And it's thought that if more than 50% of their symptoms are correlated with an episode of reflux, then this is positive. Another test you can do is esophageal impedance monitoring. And this basically um, is done to screen for whether or not they're having gastroduodenal reflux or postprandial reflux, where they're getting reflux of gastric contents, but because they're duodenal contents or because they are um, food contents, they don't have a high acid level, so they wouldn't be picked up on the pH monitoring. Um, And again, they place an electrode into the esophageal lumen, and this is able to identify when there is a volume of liquid or food coming up into the esophagus. The last test that may be done in reflux disease is manometry, which we'll talk about a bit more on achalasia, but basically is looking at the motor function of the esophagus. And it's to basically rule out a primary dysmotility disorder such as achalasia. And if there was a suspicion for a dysmotility disorder and you did a anti-reflux procedure on this patient, then you would actually make their esophageal function worse because you're limiting the drainage of the esophagus. So it's important to rule this out if there's any suspicion of um, the patient having a dysmotility disorder as well. Management of gastroesophageal reflux disease is usually approached in a stepwise fashion. So first, you would do lifestyle modification and medication management. Lifestyle modification includes advising weight loss, as well as giving guidance such as avoiding foods that may precipitate reflux, elevating the head of the bed if there are nocturnal symptoms, and avoiding going to bed with a full stomach. In addition, you would suggest the patient stop smoking, uh, limit their alcohol and coffee intake. Proton pump inhibitors are the mainstay of treatment of gastroesophageal reflux disease. It does not treat the reflux itself, but it does change the acidity of the reflux, so it manages the patient's symptoms. A history should involve whether or not the patient has been compliant with their 
PPI therapy and also what dose they're on. And it may be worth, if they haven't responded to a low-dose PPI, trialing a higher dose and seeing how the patient goes with that. And they may need escalating doses throughout their treatment. Another option are histamine 2 receptor antagonists, which can be useful in mild to moderate reflux, but usually are not first line. Reflux surgery is an option, and it can be difficult to decide which patients may benefit from an anti-reflux operation. It requires a consideration of the whole picture, the patient's symptoms, their response to PPI therapy, endoscopy findings, uh, and any results of any investigation such as pH monitoring and whether or not the reflux is correlating with their symptoms. Typically, a patient who's referred to a surgeon would have already trialed a PPI, but you should reassess the patient's PPI therapy, their compliance, and either increase their dose or trial a different drug um, if you don't think that they've had a good trial of PPI. If they have any atypical symptoms or red flags, you should work them up with an endoscopy and, again, referral to any appropriate services such as cardiology or respiratory if they have atypical symptoms. In clinical practice, not every patient being considered for reflux surgery would undergo pH studies and manometry. However, having discussed with some people who are going to be sitting the exam soon, they have suggested that in the exam scenario, the answer should be that all patients being considered for an anti-reflux procedure should have a gastroscopy, pH studies, and manometry studies. Some indications for anti-reflux operations include a failure to respond to medical therapy, and usually this would be three months of a high-dose PPI. And it's key to think that you know a PPI may improve their heartburn symptoms, but if they're having a lot of volume reflux, uh, the PPI is not going to control that. So that may be an indication for an operation. Young patients who are well controlled on medication but don't want to take a lifelong PPI may be a good indication for an operation. If a patient has complicated reflux disease, such as patients with current strictures, throat symptoms, or Barrett's esophagus, then they may also benefit from a reflux operation. And the aims of an anti-reflux operation is to prevent the reflux by reconstructing an anti-reflux valve at the gastroesophageal junction. It does cure the problem, which is good because it means that patients don't need to take medications but is also being an operation associated with its own operative morbidity and can have its own complications such as dysphagia, uh, post-op weight loss, and the symptoms of gas bloat, which is gas retention with increased flatulence after the operation. There are a number of different types of surgeries for reflux disease, and basically These are usually fundoplications, which is where you wrap the fundus of the stomach around the abdominal esophagus. This can be done as a laparoscopic or an open operation, and the wraps can be partial or complete, and they can be wrapped around posteriorly or anteriorly. In general, the more total the circumference of the wrap, the more control of reflux you get but the higher the risk of complications such as dysphagia and gas bloat, but the more durable the reflux control. The less circumferential the wrap, the less um, durable the control of reflux, but the less incidence of complications such as dysphagia and gas bloat. 
the choice of operation and choice of fund application does appear to be institution and operator dependent. So for the exam, it's worth choosing uh, which particular wrap or approach you would do for different scenarios, such as for simple reflux disease, or what you might do if you were doing a wrap in combination with a hired attorney repair or in combination with a Hellas myotomy uh, so that you have an approach and an answer for the exam. Different types you might come across include the Nissen fund application or the total fund application, and this involves wrapping the fundus of the stomach posteriorly 360 degrees around the distal esophagus. This has high rates of dysphagia and gas bloat syndrome with an inability to belch, um, but does have good reflux control. There are partial fund applications, such as an anterior fund application that can be done 120 degrees, 180 degrees, 90 degrees, um, or even a partial, such as a door procedure. And these, again, have pretty good reflux control and lower incidence of complications. You can also do a posterior wrap, a common one's the toupee fund application, um, where you get a 270 degree posterior fund application. And again, these have good reflux control. The Fund application procedure can be combined with a hiatus hernia repair if the patient has a hiatus hernia as well, which a lot of patients with reflux may do, as this, as we talked about earlier, can predispose uh, or contribute to the incidence of reflux. And it's a little bit controversial, but some people propose that a collis procedure or an esophageal lengthening procedure um, can also be done for patients whose esophagogastric junction cannot be reduced below the diaphragm. Most of the surgeons that I work with would say that that's a pretty rare occurrence, um, uh, but basically tries to reconstruct the intra-abdominal part of the esophagus uh, so that you're getting that intra-abdominal pressure effect or anti-reflux effect on that part of the esophagus again. There are some other, I guess, experimental operations for reflux disease that include augmentation of the lower esophageal sphincter with rings of like magnets, but this is not really done in clinical practice that I've seen. Reflux surgery is relatively safe nowadays. It's often done laparoscopically, but there are risks associated with it. Some early potential risks of a anti-reflux operation or fund application include conversion to open, perforation or damage to the stomach or the esophagus with the immobilization, pneumomediastinum because you often, especially if you're combining this with a hiatus hernia repair, have to mobilize up into the um, mediastinum, a pulmonary embolus, injury to major vessels, especially the aorta which sits directly behind all of this and the inferior vena cava which is nearby. You can get an early uh, recurrence of a hiatus hernia um, and early dysphagia, especially with swelling. This usually settles. Late complications include dysphagia, gas bloat, which we've mentioned, an inability to belch or vomit, which is, I would say, typically expected with this procedure. And it's important to consent patients for that preoperatively. If a hiatal hernia repair is done and the hiatus is um, uh, closed too tightly, you can get a hiatal stenosis. Uh, bilobed stomach is a potential long-term risk if a piece of fundus or stomach that's too distal is used to wrap around the esophagus and you can get a recurrence of a hiatus hernia or a slip of the wrap. Moving on now to hiatus hernias. A hiatus hernia is a herniation of 
intra-abdominal contents through a widened hiatus. They're relatively common with about 10% of the population uh, being found to have them on investigation. Risk factors for the development of a hiatus hernia are age, greater than 50 years old, elevated BMI, male sex, and there also is some hiatus hernias that run in families. We classify hiatus hernias uh, as type 1, 2, 3, and 4. A type 1 hiatus hernia is also known as a sliding hiatus hernia. This is where the gastric cardia herniates proximally with movement of the lower esophageal sphincter into the thorax. A type 2 hiatus hernia is rare, and this is a true paraesophageal hernia. It's thought to be rare because typically a type 1 hernia would transform into a type 3, and basically type 2 is where the esophagogastric junction remains in place at the um, normal position, but the fundus of the stomach herniates through an enlarged hiatus. A type 3 hiatus hernia is combined type 1 and type 2 and is the majority of hernias. And this is where the uh, gastroesophageal junction and gastric cardia have herniated up into the thorax as well as the gastric fundus has extended up into the thorax as well. And there's usually a true sac present. The elements securing the stomach in the normal position become lax and this can then progress into a type 4 hiatus hernia, which is um, where there's a large defect with other viscera or abdominal organs contained in the hernial sac. Typically, this is the transverse colon. A giant hiatus hernia is another term you might come across. I couldn't really find what the clear definition for this was, but it looks like it can either be a type 3 or a type 4 hiatus hernia and seems to be when at least half of the stomach is in the thorax or the hernia measures more than six centimeters on the endoscopy, or when the um, hiatus is more than five centimeters, noted intraoperatively. The presentation of hiatus hernias is variable. About half of patients with a hiatus hernia are completely asymptomatic. Other symptoms may be related to gastroesophageal reflux disease as a result of the hernia, so epigastric or chest pain, heartburn, regurgitation. They may also find uh, postprandial fullness or early satiety, dysphagia if it's causing uh, partial obstruction, and if there's complications of the hiatus hernia, such as uh, incarcerated or volved hernia, patients may present with gastric outlet obstruction or shock. In addition, you can get ulceration of the um, hiatus hernia at the um, hiatal impression called Cameron's ulcers, and these can bleed and cause iron deficiency anemia. In terms of diagnosis, If it's asymptomatic, sometimes it can be found incidentally on imaging studies. Uh, Specifically, CT scans will often find incidental hiatus hernias. But the best test looking for a hiatus hernia is a gastroscopy. At gastroscopy, you may find that the gastroesophageal junction, which can be identified at the apex of the gastric mucosal folds or at the bottom of the palisading vessels in the esophagus, is not Uh, at the same position as the crural impression. It can also be helpful to do a retroflexed view in the stomach to have a look at the esophagus and see whether or not there's any evidence of a hernia. In addition, the mucosa can be inspected for ulcers or strictures and um, malignancy can be ruled out as a cause of their symptoms. 
Another test that can be done is a barium swallow or a contrast um, swallow CT scan. This is not necessary for a diagnosis of gourd or a hiatus hernia, but can be helpful to identify anatomy and help with planning and operative repair. Patients may also undergo pH studies or manometry, as we talked about earlier in this episode, if they're presenting with atypical symptoms and it's not clear whether or not reflux is the cause of their symptoms. In terms of management, there is a nice guideline by the SAGES group, which is the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons, which is worth having a look at from April 2013. In general, there is medical and surgical options for managing a hiatus hernia. And it really depends on taking a good history and determining whether or not the patient is symptomatic or asymptomatic or whether they're actually worried by any symptoms that may be caused by their hiatus hernia. In terms of medical management, uh, there can be non-operative lifestyle management such as weight loss, elevating the head at night and eliminating dietary triggers of reflux disease as well as medical management with uh, proton pump inhibitors uh, to manage any reflux symptoms that they may have. With regards to indications for surgery, patients may have an indication for operative repair if they have symptomatic reflux disease and they have failed uh, medical management with a PPI. If they have a volume reflux or regurgitation, then they're not going to respond to PPIs, so this may be an indication. If patient wants an operation to avoid lifelong medical therapy, uh, such as lifelong PPI and they're young. If they're having extraesophageal manifestations of reflux disease, such as aspiration or asthma. And if they have other complications, such as gastric outlet obstruction, anemia, Barrett's esophagus or peptic strictures. And the last indication is if a patient has a very large hiatus hernia or giant hiatus hernia, there may be concern for gastric strangulation or volvulus developing, and patients may also present with a gastric strangulation or volvulus, so this would be an indication for a repair. In the first recording of this podcast, I left the indications there. However, having had a discussion with some set fives who are sitting the exam soon, their approach was to say that you would always repair a type 2, 3, and 4 hiatus hernia and any giant hiatus hernia, but an asymptomatic type 1 could be left. Operations can be performed laparoscopic, open, or even via thoracotomy. The principles of operation are complete removal of the hernial sac and reduction of the herniated stomach as well as two to three centimeters of distal esophagus back into the abdominal cavity and then repair of the diaphragmatic hiatus. Most of these operations would also involve a fundoplication. There are some controversies around hiatus hernia repairs. The first one I mentioned earlier was uh, around a shortened esophagus um, where a surgeon is unable to gain two to three centimetres of tension-free intra-abdominal esophagus following reduction of the uh, mediastinal sac. The thought is that if you cannot do this, then you have an increased risk of hernia recurrence due to the tension of the esophagus pulling back up into the chest and the thought that these patients should have a collis procedure where you lengthen the esophagus is quite controversial and I'm not sure how I would bring that up in the exam if I was asked about it, so it would be worth asking our specialists when we get them on the podcast. The other controversial 
topic that sometimes comes up is whether or not to reinforce the cruise with um, mesh uh, or uh, pledgeted sutures. Some studies show that uh, bioprosthetic mesh reinforcement is safe and may decrease the rate of early recurrence, um, but synthetic meshes have been associated with erosions into the esophagus. Uh, so it's a little controversial. I know that some surgeons would use pledgets. I've seen that used in clinical practice, but an approach for the exam may be to say that the use of reinforcement is institution and operator dependent. The best approach is to do a good repair with sutures. And the principles of using any mesh is to avoid placement of the mesh in contact with the esophagus or stomach to avoid any potential erosion. This is another topic I think we will ask the specialist about when we get them on the podcast. We can't talk about hiatus hernia without touching on acute gastric volvulus. Basically, this is a condition where you get rotation of the stomach around a fixed axis, and this commonly occurs in giant uh, type 3 or type 4 hiatus hernias. And basically, the rotation can cause gastric strangulation and outlet obstruction and is a surgical emergency. The two types of volvulus are organoaxial volvulus, which is where the stomach rotates around a line drawn from the cardia to the pylorus. And this is most likely to be associated with that strangulation uh, and necrosis of the stomach. The other type is a mesenterico-axial volvulus, which is where the stomach rotates around a transverse axis, which is where you draw a line between the mid-lesser curve to the mid-greater curve. And this type is more likely to be associated with intermittent obstructive type symptoms. The typical presentation of acute gastric volvulus is Borchardt's triad, B-O-R-C-H-A-R-D-T, and this is three symptoms of severe epigastric pain, retching and an inability to vomit, and an inability to pass a nasogastric tube. But not all patients will present this way. Some patients will present with severe chest pain, Others can present with severe sepsis and shock because of perforation on a chronic ischemic stomach. Often the diagnosis is made on a chest X-ray, which will demonstrate a retrocardiac air fluid level within the stomach and often a second air fluid level below the diaphragm. It's worth looking up chest X-rays of an acute gastric volvulus so that you know what this looks like. A barium swallow may demonstrate the obstruction of the stomach in the chest. And a CT will also show the stomach within the chest and without any oral contrast passing below the diaphragm. The pathophysiology of this condition is that the stomach has evolved and therefore you get distension of the stomach. Often the swallowed gas or food is still going into the stomach but cannot escape. You can also have obstruction of venous outflow and the distension and uh, increasing pressure from venous congestion leads to obstruction of arterial inflow with eventual ischemia, necrosis, perforation, and subsequent sepsis mediastinitis. The distension in the mediastinum can also uh, lead to mediastinal shift and blood pressure abnormalities related to that, um, and patients can also aspirate and get aspiration pneumonia. So this can cause patients to become very, very ill. And the management of this condition uh, is initially via the CRISP algorithm with systemic assessment and management of the patient's airway, breathing, circulation. 
keeping the patient nil by mouth, antibiotics if there's any concern of necrosis or perforation, giving the patients IV therapy. Importantly, an attempt should be made to decompress the stomach with a nasogastric tube, and this will reduce that distension and buys you time uh, if there's not already established necrosis and perforation, and, and its time can be used to resuscitate the patient and work them up for a repair. Another option is to do this via a gastroscopy, which will allow visualisation and placement of the nasogastric tube, as well as an assessment of the mucosa for any ischemia or necrosis. Other investigations you may consider are a chest X-ray and abdo X-ray, as I've mentioned, a CT with oral contrast, which can also demonstrate uh, how much of the stomach is in the chest, whether there is any other organs, and help with your preoperative planning. If you are unable to pass a nasogastric tube or once the patient has been stabilized and worked up for a repair, the next step is to do a definitive repair of the hiatus hernia and to pexy the stomach back in position. This procedure can be done laparoscopic or open depending on the state of the patient. The aims of the operation are the same as with a normal hiatus hernia repair, where you want to reduce the whole sac and the stomach down into the abdomen, as well as repairing the hiatal uh, cruse and usually uh, combining this with a fundoplication. However, if the patient is very unwell um, and not able to tolerate a long procedure, you can then just reduce the sac and the stomach and pexy the stomach in position by placing a peg tube to hold the stomach in place. And a gastroscopy is a useful adjunct with the surgery to ensure that there isn't any ischemic mucosa. And if there was any evidence of ischemia or necrosis, then that aspect of the stomach would need to be resected. And that completes this summary of gastroesophageal reflux disease and hiatus hernia. Make sure to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast so that other people can find it. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! Happy studying!